there was a man named Asher. Asher lived on the outskirts of Jerusalem in first century A.D., around the time of Jesus. And on the outskirts of Jerusalem, you would follow this road up to Jericho, and his house was off to the side of that road, and it was just these four walls. One larger room, there was one window that would let some light and air in, and there was one entryway. And in that home, he had his wife and two young daughters, Asher and his family. That home provided joy and peace, solitude and hope even. Outside of that home, things were very different during that time. It was the height of Roman domination and oppression in the world. There was fear of a loved one that could be taken. There was fears of even the taxes growing higher and higher, not being able to provide. And there was a lot of weight, a lot of burden. But in that home, Asher and his family, they loved their life. They loved being together. And as a Jewish family at that time, they tried to honor Yahweh. They tried to honor God the best they could. Keeping Shabbat, keeping Sabbath, honoring the commandments, loving each other well. They tried to navigate all of that. And in order for them to keep this life inside this home, Asher worked as a cloth maker. It was a pretty common occupation for a Jewish person at that time. And it certainly wasn't a prestigious one or something that would bring in a lot, but he was faithful to do it. He went every day to the cloth shop with a few other Jewish men that they owned together, and he would use his hands and needles, and he would make clothing and garments for the people in the area, and his, his life was good. He was providing for his family, and they were building hope and, and love together. Unfortunately, as taxes begin to increase and things begin to get more expensive and, and all of these things happen, Asher's realizing this job at the cloth shop, it's not really going to keep up. It's not going to continue to provide and, and keep our home that place of solace and enjoyment and love together. So what he had to do is he had to find a second job. So he used to come home, close down the cloth shop, walk all the way back to this four-wall house with the living area off to one side, the sleeping area, and then the cooking area. And he used to come home. They would cook meals together, enjoy, laugh, spend lots of time in that place together. But now, instead, he just had to come home, eat his dinner, and then right after dinner, he would make his way off to his second job that he took. And that second job involved what is called a winnowing fork that would separate wheat from the plants. And he would go to the field and separate wheat all evening long until dusk. And ultimately, he would get, gather all of this together, and he would take it to the overseer of the field, and he would get his portion, his extra money, and then he would be able to continue to provide for his family. The walk home was very mixed for Asher from his second job and, that he had been doing for months now. There was a little bit of exhaustion and tiredness. He would walk with his head down, but there was also hope and gratefulness that he would go get to see his family, tuck his two girls into bed, and, and spend time together. It was a hard life, but it was a good one. All until one day when everything changed. He gets up, eats breakfast with his family, goes off to his cloth-making shop, does his activities, and creates the garments. By the way, 
his little girls loved the fact that he was a cloth maker, not because it brought them a lot of money, but because on their special occasions, maybe a birthday or something like that, he would bring them home a, a piece of clothing that was beautiful and wonderful, and, and they would get to be maybe even unique, different from some of the other young Jewish girls who, who had a special um, piece of clothing from dad. As he finished that job, though, the, the little girls didn't understand why dad had to leave again to go with the winnowing fork and separate out grain, that that job didn't bring them anything cool or exciting or, or special. It just felt like that was separating dad from them. But on this day, he finishes dinner with them and starts walking again, making his way towards the field. Finishes up that job, gives the grain to the overseer, and with that same posture, he begins to walk home. Head down, tired, exhausted, but gratefully gets to go home to his family. He's walking the couple miles back home, and in one particular field, he sees this indentation in the ground, this almost bump in the ground, and he gets down on his hands and his knees, and he stops. He doesn't know why he stopped, because usually he would just try to get home as quickly as he could. He would just want to be home with his family enjoying time in bed, but something in his spirit, maybe it was even the Lord that pause, helped him to pause. And so he begins to dig in the field. He gets the the clay on his hands and and the dirt on his hands, and he begins to dig and dig. And it's this huge thing. It becomes wood. And ultimately, he finds this massive chest of treasure, gold and silver. And as he's even looking through that, he sees, oh my goodness, this is worth 40 years of wages working two jobs a day. I couldn't earn this in, in 40 years. It's more than that. Adrenaline hits his body, excitement. There's all of this even chaos ensuing inside of him. And instead of the walk back like he usually did, he instead buries the treasure again, hides it, makes sure there's no indentation, there's no bump in the dirt, and begins to run home. Not, not his walk, not his slow, exhausted, but begins to run home. He bursts into that entryway of the house, and he tells his wife and his kids, hey, begin to gather all of our clothes, all of our food, everything we have. We need to sell it to our neighbors. We need to sell these things. And so they begin just chaos on the house. The, the wife is like, okay, wait, w- what's happening here? This doesn't make any sense. But she trusts Asher. She says, you know what, well, let's go ahead and try it. And so they begin selling all these things to neighbors, even Roman soldiers that are patrolling the streets who they would never even want to interact with. They begin selling their possessions to the mats that they sleep on, the cool clothes that he brought home for his daughters. They sell all of that. And ultimately, they begin to even realize there's nothing left in their house. They're selling everything. With the proceeds, with the the money that they sold everything with that night, Asher runs back to the field again to that same overseer who who owns all the plots of land and says to him, I want to buy that field. I want to buy that field that he knows the treasure's on. And so he he gives the money to this overseer, buys the field, and I can just imagine him with his wife and his two kids. They own nothing. They don't have anything left to go back to, but he just lays down in the field. Now it's dark outside. He looks at the stars and says, my life is forever changed. What a gift from God. What a gift from God. 
If you're tracking with the story at all, you may notice some familiar elements. If you want to turn with me to Matthew chapter 13, verse 44 in your Bibles, we're going to read just one verse out loud for you all. Matthew 13, verse 44, it says this, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy, he went and sold all that he had, and he bought that field. This is the word of the Lord, church. It still speaks true today. One of my mentors in college, his name was Dave Ward, he used to talk about this concept the white space of Scripture. If you have your Bibles or maybe on your phones pulled up, you'll notice that there's red and black letters, the red letters of Jesus and the black letters of the Bible, and then there's a bunch of white space. What he called the white space of Scripture was the historical context because, again, the Bible is not just words on a page for us today, but it was a lived reality. It actually happened Jesus actually spoke the words, and the people he spoke them to originally would have had so much context and things that we don't have. So when Jesus says just one verse like this, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. We read that as, oh, that's really cool. That guy found treasure in a field, and he bought it. They would have filled in all of these things that potentially Asher would have done. His life would have been forever changed. It would have been 40 years wages. It would have been all of these things where freedom from Roman oppression, freedom from the taxes that that was just keeping him exhausted and worn out. Now, we're not going to build our theology or our uh, biblical concepts on the fact that he's a cloth maker or the fact that he worked two jobs or anything like that. Those are all just filling in the imagination of Scripture. That's not what we're building our our biblical basis on. But what we are building our lives on is the heart of God, the heart of Jesus as he shares these parables. Why does he share these parables? What's he doing? So, in fact, together, let's look at this parable kind of phrase by phrase as we open up our mind to the biblical world. The first phrase we see, when a man found it, a man found it. This Asher character, he wasn't looking. In fact, the very next parable that Jesus shares with the pearls of great price, there's a merchant that's actively looking for great pearls. This is a complete contrast to that. Asher, this person, this man that Jesus tells, he wasn't looking, he wasn't seeking it out or thinking, today is going to be the day I find treasure. I'll say it this way. His effort didn't lead to the discovery. It wasn't his effort. It wasn't his, the favor on his life. It wasn't that he was better than others, but it was the fact that God granted and gifted him this treasure. He hides it again. That's the next phrase we're going to look at. Asher, this Asher character, this man, he knows the worth of the treasure. He knows the worth of the treasure so much that he's willing to bury it again, Go back home, sell everything he has, uproot his entire life, change everything, bend everything he's ever known so that he can get his hands on that treasure. And what does the treasure represent? The very first phrase in this, in this sentence, in Matthew 13, 44, that treasure represents the kingdom of heaven, relationship with Jesus, life and life eternal on earth as it is in heaven. 
Jesus wants us to realize how surpassing the worth of that is. Now, people reading this, maybe even us today, we can read this and say, wow, that is the luckiest break ever. How do you stumble on a field with 40 years worth of buried treasure that you just happen to find to buy? That is the biggest coincidence, the most lucky thing you could ever have. And I don't know about you all, but as I've followed Jesus year after year, I'm beginning to believe less and less in luck and coincidence and more in how intimately involved God is in our lives. How careful and attentive he is and active in our every moments. Though for some reason, when Michigan State basketball is playing, especially in March, and the announcer goes, he's made 14 free throws in a row, there's no way he could miss this. I tend to want to like knock on wood or something like that. I, I know it's dumb, it's, it, it's not right, but so something in me still wants to do that. I, I don't know why that is. Um, aside from a, a few lapses in judgment like that, I, I don't believe in luck or coincidence because I believe God is active. He was active in this, this man who found the treasure. He's active in your life. He wants to give you gifts. He wants to lead you. Our eyes just need to be open to it. I believe that God gifted, invited, shared the treasure of his kingdom with the man who found the treasure in the field, and he wants to share it with you today. He wants to share it with our city today, with the world today. I'll say it this way. God is, he is a generous God who gives good gifts to his children You're his beloved son, his daughter. He wants to give good gifts to you. The thing I love about this passage, too, is that it shows the correct posture, the right heart posture in receiving gifts from our generous and gracious God. You see, Asher wasn't anxious or bitter that he would have to uproot his life. He wasn't saying, dang it, I've got to go change everything to follow Jesus. I've got, I've got to change everything to get the treasure of the kingdom of heaven. No, in, in his what? In his joy. In his joy, he goes and sells the field. He uproots his life. He changes everything because he knows that this generous and gracious God receiving his gifts, it's worth everything. Even the home and the life and the safety that they had built. Yet, in our human hearts, we often can do the opposite. We have a temptation when we receive gifts from God, when we are invited to participate in the kingdom, or or we have amazing gifts given to us, even earthly possessions, money, things like that. We see God as favoring us, as we are actually better creating an, an unhelpful and wrong hierarchy in our minds rather than the fact that everyone has value and everyone's a son and daughter of our Father in heaven, and he he wants good for them too. I'll, I'll say it this way. The gifts of God are given to us to give to others. There's joy in the sharing of the gifts of God, not in the hoarding of the gifts of God. Sharing. Again, going with our imagination with Asher's story, I wonder, I imagine, do you think every single one of his neighbors' lives were changed? Do you think his little girls, their friends' lives were changed? Do you think the whole community was renewed and brought to a better standard of life and happiness and joy 
because of what Asher found? I, I hope so. That's the posture God wants us to see. It's not about hoarding. It's about sharing. We do have this temptation, though, as humans to misuse, to misunderstand God's gift and God's invitation into kingdom living. Let's go to Matthew chapter 19, just a few chapters later, starting in verse 20, if you'll turn with me there. Matthew chapter 19, starting in verse 20. Verse 20 begins to say this. This young man said, All of these I have kept. What still do I lack? All of these laws, everything I've kept, I've tried to be perfect. What still do I lack? Jesus answered, If you want to be perfect, go. Sell your possessions, give to the poor, you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The foundation of this sermon, of this series, of God as gracious and generous and longing to give us good gifts is that he actually invites us, he actually gives good gifts to all of us. The one who didn't do anything by his effort, the one who was just walking randomly through a field and saw a bump in the dirt, to the one who is coming and asking, what do I need to do? How do I be perfect? How do I follow God? Jesus gives the same invitation to all of us. And that invitation specifically to this young man was sell your possessions, give to the poor, you will have treasure in heaven. The invitation of the treasure is the exact same. You're going to have that same treasure, more valuable than anything you could ever have for yourself, you could ever create that's temporary on this earth. And yet, the differing reactions, right? One goes away. What was the key word in the first? It was he, in his joy. And then the second one is he went away sad. Why the differing reactions? Why the same invitation, the same call, the same generous God, and yet differing reactions. For some reason, wealth, having a lot, caused the sadness. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Why is money, even 2,000 years later, seemingly hasn't changed, why is money one of the gifts that we misunderstand and we misuse the most? What, what is that in human nature uh, about us? Why can being wealthy, why can having a lot be a hindrance? Last scripture for today that we're going to look at, 1 Timothy 6.10. I think this helps us answer the question. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Now, if you've been around Trinity at all for the last couple of months, we know clearly that love matters. 
how we define love, how we live out love in action, who we love. Our love matters. It forms us. It shapes us. We've been going through for the last couple of months all about love, defining it clearly. And Paul, to Timothy, says this, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money, they've wandered from the faith. They've pierced themselves with griefs. That's exactly what happened in this passage where wealth caused this rich young ruler, this young man, to say, no, 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 I I actually can't follow Jesus. I have to go away sad, wandering from the faith. There's a Greek word that I want to put on the screen. Um, It's the word orego. Go ahead and tell your neighbor orego. It's fun to say. Now, orego means to stretch oneself, to bend towards something, to desire something that you are willing to move, to stretch, to change your life. It's actually the word eager in 1 Timothy 6, chapter, in 1 Timothy 6 verse 10. Some people eager. So it's this stretching, it's this desiring, it's this going after. Do you notice how Paul doesn't say, Money leads to evil. He says the love of money, eagering for money, that's what can lead to evil because our love matters. I'll say it this way as we look at these couple of different stories in Scripture. It's not will you stretch yourself. It's not will you eagerly go after something in this life. It's what will you eagerly go after? All of us are choosing something to eagerly go after. All of us have something that we desire, that we orient our lives around, that we want to go after and and give our all to. We all stretch ourselves towards something. Money is one of those things. And maybe it's not even money explicitly, but maybe it's what money brings. Money can bring security, safety, influence. Or The question is, are we willing to stretch ourselves to give, to share the gifts of God with others? Are we willing to stretch ourselves for the kingdom like Asher was when he changed everything in his life just so he could get close to the kingdom of God, get close to Jesus? Speaking of stretching, uh, let's talk about camels for a second. Um, If you guys have ever seen any of those nature documentaries, The fact that the camel's legs are like two inches wide and they're huge torsos, these huge humps and all that, and yet they can just bend down in like the perfect thing. That always makes me like really nervous when I watch a documentary and there's a camel in it. I feel like the leg's just going to snap like right out from under them. I don't know if anybody else is like that. Um, Camels have this uncanny ability to stretch, to bend, to kind of move. And I wonder if that's why Jesus mentioned this in the story with the rich young ruler. He says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, if you're anything like me, um, my mind first went to this idea. You know how when you're driving out west, how many have gone on an out west road trip? If you're online, you raise your hand. I can't see you, but hope you had fun on the road trip. Um, How many of you all have driven past world's largest things. Like uh, on the road trips out west, it's world's largest traffic cone, world's largest apple, world's largest, there's so many of the world's largest. So my mind jumped to, all right, 
I got to find the world's largest needle and walk through it. Which obviously, God's tapping on my shoulder like, AJ, you don't want to find loopholes for scripture. You actually want to obey scripture. Okay, fair enough, fair enough. Um, That's why we have a Monday teaching team meeting for all of the people. When we preach, we come together and we share ideas. And that idea just got got whacked because that's not what we're supposed to be doing here. God isn't into shrinking humans or enlarging needles. God's into changing hearts. And what the eye of the needle actually is in Scripture and in context is this gate leading into Jerusalem. As you can see, very skinny on the bottom, gets a little wider as it gets to the top. This is the way that camels would enter the city of Jerusalem. There would be a long traveling period. You would get to the gate. What the camel would have to do is it would have to do that weird like nature documentary thing where it it bends down, gets on uh, its really skinny legs, and the rider... The owner would have to remove all the possessions, all of the food, the money, the clothing, everything they had traveled with. It would have to remove all of that from the camel, and then the camel could sneak through the eye of the needle to get into the city of Jerusalem. And again, church, God isn't into enlarging needles, but he wants to change hearts. He wants us to be a people that we get on our knees and we say, God, I've been blessed with so much. I've been given so much. I have possessions, food, wealth, all of these things. But I am willing for the sake of the kingdom to get on my knees and whatever you ask me to, I will remove. I will take off so that I can enter and participate in kingdom life. Because as it says, after the story we just read in Matthew 19, it says, with God, all things are possible. All things are possible. It is possible for us to get on our knees, to open up our lives and say, I want to stretch for the kingdom. I want to bend for the kingdom, not just for the pursuit of money or temporary things. I just want to put this on the screen for a second. It's this idea of as we prepare our hearts in expectation for Jesus this Advent season, as we prepare our hearts in expectation for Jesus this Advent season. Can we just take a deep breath together, church? Just a deep breath, expectation. Waiting for Jesus. Waiting for his coming. Remembering his first one. Excited for his second one. As we expect and prepare our hearts, I want to invite you to let God lead you to your knees, lead you to humbling yourself, to stretching your life, just like the camel has to get through the eye of the needle, just like Asher in the first story had to change everything about his life to get the treasure of the kingdom of heaven. I wonder if we could be a people with a posture that is open before God. Open before God. I love this quote. We talked about this as as a team. Um, The king dwarf in Lord of the Rings says this to, to his son. And he says, May gold run through your fingers, but never into your heart. May gold run through your fingers, but never into your heart. I think that's the kind of posture we're getting at of if money runs through our fingers, if we have it, 
great. Let's use it for the kingdom because our hearts are not attached to that money. Our hearts are attached to people knowing Jesus, to more people finding the treasure of the kingdom. That's what our hearts, our allegiance, our everything, that's what we arego, that's what we attach ourselves to. I'm going to go ahead and invite the band up, and, and we're going to close in response here. I want to ask this question. What are you eager for? As we prepare for the coming of Jesus, what are you eager for? What is your treasure? And if you even this morning want to make a commitment that Jesus would be your treasure, he would be the number one in your life for the very first time maybe, please fill out a next steps card. Come pray with somebody. You can give your life to Jesus today. The same invitation that he gave to Asher, that he gave to the rich young ruler, that he has given through all generations. Come, follow me. Follow me. The heart of God is generous, loving, giving good gifts to his children. He wants to give good gifts to you, but when he gives you good gifts, he wants you to share. He wants you to use it so that his gifts might go around your city, your family, your friends, and the world, not just stay with you. You are Jesus' treasure. Jesus is eager for you. Are you eager for him? Are you eager for the kingdom? If everybody can get their next steps cards out as we respond, I I just want to leave you with one question. You can fake to do it too if if you want to make me feel better. Sit with this question with the Holy Spirit for a second. How will you stretch how will you bend? What, what, what could stretching look like in this season? Could you give? We do a Christmas give where we give to things like Destiny Rescue and the mission in Indianapolis, our North Pole event, all of these amazing things. How could you give? How could you stretch? What, what would it look like? Because here's the deal, church. I am not here to tell you exactly how to stretch, but I am here to say God invites you to stretch, to humble yourself when you're part of the kingdom and you participate in it. So on your next steps cards, just let the Holy Spirit lead. Let him guide your hearts as we see Jesus as our treasure. How can we stretch to share Jesus with the world? He is worthy of everything, selling every possession, changing our entire lives just as Asher did. He is worthy of all of that. Respond as God leads on how you can stretch your life for him. Thanks for listening to Sunday Sermon on the Made for More podcast. If you are not connected in a church community, we would love to connect with you. Send us a message on social media or fill out a digital next steps card at encountertrinity.com slash next steps.